Well, good morning again to you, Rock Hill. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Grab them and open them up to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're launching or relaunching back into the Gospel of Matthew. We were in there last year. Can you believe that it's already February 2022? So as you're turning there, just as a reminder, chapter 1 of Matthew begins with a phone book. Do you remember that? You're probably going to look at it now because I'm saying it, but Matthew chapter 1, Matthew has an agenda of which he's writing this gospel. He's writing this gospel for you to understand that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And so in Matthew chapter 1, he links all of the names, all of the lineage of Jesus all the way back to David, David being the great king of Israel, and to Abraham, the father of Judaism. So what he's showing you there is that Jesus is the promised Messiah of whom they had been looking for, and they can trust the phone book, all right? Chapter 2 of Matthew. Chapter 2 of Matthew, even in your, some of your subtext might say this, as it does in mine. It says, wise men, right, visit or give gifts to the king. So what we're being told here is that it's sometime after, I'm sorry your nativity scene is not accurate, but the wise men come some years after Jesus has been born and they bring gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? This is how we say it, right? But they come and they come bearing gifts to this Jesus who is the king. Chapter 3, this king Jesus submits himself to baptism. He comes to John the Baptist who was that uh, we might call him a hobo a little bit. He was eating honey and locusts out in the wilderness, wearing the things of the field. He comes, and Jesus gets baptized. Baptized, the word literally means to be immersed or to be dipped. We saw that displayed today. Chapter 4, the king is tempted by Satan. What does Satan give him? He says, I'll give you all the nations of this world. And Jesus says, oh, you don't have it. I have it. So here we go. So Jesus denies him, and he quotes from one book of the Bible, could you imagine, if you're being tempted by Satan to quote from one book of the Bible, what would you pick? It probably wouldn't be the book that Jesus picked. He picked Deuteronomy. And so from Deuteronomy, Jesus quotes several passages, defeating Satan, saying, I don't have any business with that. And then we land in chapter 5, 6, and 7, where we spent the majority of our time talking through the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, which really is the manifesto of the ethics of Christianity. If you ever said, what is it, what is a Christian supposed to live like from the lips of Jesus? You would look to the Beatitudes and you would look to the Sermon on the Mount and you find the king giving his speech about how it is you ought to live. Now, when we get done with that, we come to chapter 8. And we're beginning a series, and here in 8, Jesus, after telling everybody, all the religious leaders, that their thinking has been wrong, and their attitude has been wrong, and their living has been wrong, we come to chapter 8, and Jesus doesn't just say, I have the power. Jesus then displays his power through a number of miraculous events. And that's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 8. We're going to deal with all 34 verses today. However, we won't read them all straight through. We'll read the first four verses, and then we'll pick up the rest of the verses and see the theme of which I think Jesus or Matthew is showing us through this gospel message. So if you have your Bibles and you're there, would you say word? When he came down, he's talking about Jesus, Matthew is. When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. They wanted to see what was going on. 
right away a man with leprosy came up to him. He ran up and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, it's critical, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, Jesus sending him there was simply a, a product of the law that was inst instituted in Leviticus 13. We actually learn about leprosy in Leviticus 13 and 14. We see here that Jesus is able to deliver the diseased. Jesus is able to deliver the disease. There's three specific ways in which Jesus heals in this moment. We, we see leprosy is found throughout the Old Testament. It was a, a skin disease, a skin disorder to where if you had it, you had to, watch this, quarantine. Hello, trigger word. Quarantine for a long time until it went away. This leprosy was transferred through touch. If you touched someone, it could be transferred. And it was such a disease that if it continued to uh, elaborate itself or exasperate, it would actually cause a deformation on your ends of your fingers and your hands. And they could even fall off as a result of this treacherous and gruesome infection. This disease, though, wasn't just seen in even biblical time as a physical condition. It was also seen as a spiritual condition. In fact, in Numbers, a group come against Moses, the, the rightful king, and they are cast out of the group, and they are deformed or given leprosy as a curse from God for speaking against God's anointed man. If you had leprosy, you would have to cry out to everybody, unclean. Unclean, unclean. Your Facebook status, that's all you could share. Unclean. How are you feeling today? Unclean. All right? What's your bio? Unclean. In fact, if you were on the road, you would have to move across the side of the road to get out of the way of those who were clean. You had to let everybody know your uncleanliness. And Jesus sees this man. It's what's interesting about this question from this man is that he doesn't ask, Jesus, are you able to heal me? He doesn't ask, Jesus, do you have the power to make me clean? He, he doesn't say, Jesus, I'm curious. You can tell, got a lot going on here. Are you able to make me all right? Notice the question in verse 2. It's fascinating. The man with leprosy came. And he knelt before him and said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing is a different question than are you able. See, see, Jesus is able to heal him. But the question he asks isn't are you able, are you powerful? The power of Jesus is already on display here. The question that is being asked by the leprous man is are you willing to heal me? This is the same question that is even going to be asked in a moment in an indirect way by the centurion. The centurion comes to Jesus and the centurion in verses 10 and following all the way through verse 13, he, he comes to Jesus and he says, I mean, I, I got a servant who is paralyzed and he is in terrible agony. And Jesus says to him, hey, you want me to come by and, 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 and take a look at it? And he says, no, 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 no. Y you just say the word and this man will be healed. 
You, you see it in verse 8. The end of verse 8, he says, just say the word. See, is, is Jesus willing, is Jesus going to, to choose to heal this centurion's servant? In the same way, Jesus, are you willing to heal this leprous man? Jesus, are you willing to heal my paralyzed servant? The third miracle in this section of scriptures from 1 to 17 of how Jesus defeats the disease or delivers the diseased is Peter's mother-in-law. Peter must have really liked her. They show up in Capernaum and, and they go, which was Peter's hometown. In fact, you can visit there today and see where they believed was Peter's home. You, you can't go in it, but you can go over it. It's pretty cool. But you go there and, and there's this sense of which they walk in and they know something's wrong. Peter's mother-in-law is not well and so he heals her. She, her fever goes away and she immediately gets up to, to serve them. She's a good host and so she welcomes them. We learn in verse 16 that it, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. We'll deal with this in a minute. And he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. The question in each of these moments is not, is Jesus able? The question is, is Jesus willing? Jesus, will you choose to heal this leprous man? Jesus, will you choose to heal this paralyzed servant? Jesus, will you choose to heal Peter's mother-in-law? Jesus, never, you should never have a doubt, Jesus' ability and power to heal you. But we have to understand a distinction between Jesus' sovereign power and his sovereign will. There is a distinction between the power of God here in these moments and the will of God exercised in these moments as well. The leper and the centurion and even Peter's mother-in-law are each asking Jesus, are you willing to heal? Another way you might ask this is, is, is Jesus, is it your will for these healings to take place? Is this not a different question than often the question we bring up to Jesus when there's a sickness near us we often say Jesus heal this man or heal this child or heal, heal this woman instead maybe we should be asking Jesus is it your will that this person be healed here on earth because sometimes Jesus isn't willing to heal so wait a minute I thought he's the great healer he is but do you remember Paul Paul has this thorn in the flesh and we don't know if it was his mother-in-law we don't know if it was a relationship is what I'm getting at, okay? I'm trying to ease the mood and tension in the room. We don't know if it's, if it's a relationship. We don't know if it's a group of people that are attacking him. Some commentators say that it was a physical ailment. I, I tend to lean in that direction. That it was a physical ailment that was bothering Paul, and he'd asked God to remove it, and the Lord refused to remove it from him. So there are moments in scripture where a request is made, please remove this, and the answer does not go the way the person who asked it receives it. Part of the point, I think, because some of us have prayed for loved ones. We've asked God for a miracle. We've prayed for healing, and the healing did not go the way you thought it should go. But the point 
Never is does Jesus have the ability. The point is, is Jesus willing in this instant, part of a sovereign plan, part of a sovereign will to heal in this moment. See, the one who is able to heal also knows when to heal. The one who is able to heal is also the one who knows when to heal. So when bad things happen to you, and hear me now, hear me now, bad things will happen to you. No amens to that. When things don't go the way that you think that they should go, you need to know that God has not forgotten about you. He's not abandoned you. Nothing bad happens without slipping through his fingers to say, this is part of my sovereign plan to bring them to a place of total trust and commitment to me. Is this not what Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice Perfect and pleasing, all according to his good and perfect will of God. That's why in verse 10, we learn this. Jesus says about the centurion, he says, I tell you. That means he's, he's not, not telling a lie. He says, I've not found anyone in Israel with so great faith. When I hear that, I go, well, then I want to know what kind of faith does that man have because I want to have that kind of faith. Amen. When Jesus, from the lips of Jesus, hey man, that guy's got great faith. I'm going to take, I'm going to get my notepad and go, let's sit down and talk about how, how you have faith. I, I want to learn from you, Mr. Centurion. Here, here's what I think faith is. Here's how I would define it. Faith is a humble confidence in the sovereign king. Faith is the humble confidence in the sovereign king. It's not arrogant. Just wait till you see my Jesus. It's a humble confidence. This centurion comes and he says, you don't have to come, Jesus. I just know that if you speak the word, it will happen. Because I'm a centurion, I understand authority and I understand power. As a centurion, he was entrusted by the Roman, by Rome to be in charge of a group of men. And whatever he said, they had to do. And so he knows, Jesus, I know, I know your power. If you just say it, it's going to happen. Now notice, nowhere in the Gospel of Matthew up to this point do we have a healing like this. Nowhere does this centurion have records and history of, of history of histories to say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah this Jesus, he's going to do it the same way that he did it then. No, no, we don't find it anywhere, but in this moment, up to this point, where Jesus just says it, and it's a long distance healing. It's not close contact. It's at a large distance, and this man trust the authority. He has a humble confidence in the sovereignty of the king. He understood this. Jesus speaks a word, and when he speaks that word, he basically is saying, I am willing. He says it to the leper, he says it to the centurion, and in a degree, he says it to Peter's mother-in-law. But don't miss this back in verse 3. He said, why are you jumping around? Just watch. Matthew 3, it says that Jesus touched him, who's him, him as a leper. Jesus touched the leper. Now remember, how was leprosy transferred? The uncleanliness was transferred when you touched an unclean person. That's how uncleanliness is transferred. 
uncleanliness in that day was transferred when an unclean person and you as a perceivably clean person had skin-to-skin contact. Jesus touches an unclean person, and I think it's a foreshadowing of the cross. You say, well, how is that a foreshadowing of the cross? I think you're reading into the text. Jesus, who is clean, embraces that which it is unclean to make those that are unclean clean. Luther calls this the great exchange. Our unrighteousness transferred for his righteousness. His righteousness is transferred to us who are unrighteous. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We didn't do anything to cause it. We didn't do anything to make it happen. But Jesus transfers his righteousness to us by way of the cross. At the cross, Jesus identifies with all of the unclean. By touching someone, hear this leprous man, by touching him, he's identified identifying with the uncleanliness. And by Jesus going to the cross, he's identifying with all the unclean in all of the world, those who feel untouchable. See, a leper person felt, a leprous person felt untouchable. You can't touch me. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. <laughs> he felt that way. But Jesus says, no, 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 I... I'm the clean one, and I'm going to touch the unclean. And when I touch the unclean, they become clean. So at the cross, the clean Jesus, the pure, the perfect Savior, when he goes to the cross, he's identifying with all of your past and present and even future sins. Which, by the way, at the cross, Jesus knew about all your sins. And it didn't prevent him from going to the cross. Because it's at the cross, when Jesus dies in your place, that then you can have his righteousness transferred to you. This is the beauty of the gospel. He healed many, as we learn in verses 16 and 17. Then there's a prophetic statement about a, a tie to the Old Testament in verse 17 from Isaiah 53, which I'll deal more with maybe this week in a recording that we're going to do. and We'll let you know about that. But, but I need you to hear that just there's, there's some that teach it. So I, I just got to make this clear. There's some that teach that because Jesus went to the cross, you should have no physical ailments ever. And that if you have a physical ailment, it's your sinfulness that has kept you to have that physical ailment. That a Christian never has physical ailments. They'll use this verse in Isaiah 53 as an evidence, a proof text for that. But they're wrong. Now we'll deal with that in a recording. We've just got to keep moving forward because we're still at point one. The second thing we see though in this episode is a that Jesus directs the disciples. Jesus delivers the disease. He now directs the disciples. In verse 18, a man, a scribe actually comes up to him and and in verse 19 he says this, he he approaches Jesus' teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You can imagine the crowd is swarming. He's he's relinquished all these demons. He's he's healed all these people. He's he's cast, he's done all these things. And so yeah, the crowd is kind of swarming Jesus. He says, we gotta get to the other side. Let's get in the boat, take the Uber and let's go. And so they come and the scribe runs up to Jesus and says, I'll go wherever you want to go. What does Jesus say to him? The foxes have, have holes or dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's he telling this potential disciple? He's saying, you've got to have unconditional trust in me. Some come to Jesus for the things of Jesus. 
But he's saying, if you're coming to me because you, you just want the things that I can give you, that's the wrong reason. You come to me and you get me and I will be enough. Following Jesus may mean losing everything in this world. I think some of us have lived all of our lives to come to a place of comfort. Jesus doesn't promise comfort in the scriptures. He promises peace, but he doesn't promise comfort. Too many in America today particularly make Jesus a means to an end. I mean, if I trust in Jesus, I'm going to have a brand new car? Oh, I'm in. I come to Jesus and my, my income will increase tenfold? Oh, yeah. And swindlers in pulpits will prophesy or tell you that as well. And they're dead wrong. They'll say, if you just give a little bit more to the church, oh, trust me, friend. Oh, God will return it tenfold. You shouldn't come to Jesus to get stuff. You come to Jesus to get Jesus. You don't come to Jesus to get out of hell. You come to Jesus to get Jesus. And he's worthy. And he's wonderful. You may lose everything in this world. Think about the disciples. What did they gain monetarily for following Jesus? They lost their lives. And I think for whatever reason, the temptation, the great temptation in America is not the loss of life following Jesus. It's the loss of our comfort in following Jesus. We'll obey scripture and apply scripture all the way to the point in our lives until we actually have to change something in our life. It's getting quiet. The second potential disciple comes in verse 21. Look at this. He says, Lord, another of these disciples says, first let me go bury my father. Now there's lots of different takes on this passage, but some will say, well, look, Jesus is being a little harsh because he says, hey, let the dead bury the dead, he says in verse 22. But, but listen, that's not what's really going on here. This man very well could have been saying, my father's pretty old. I'm going to get an inheritance. Let me go take care of that. i got some business to do. Once he dies, I'll get the inheritance, and then I'll come and follow you. I'll even tie. That'll be fine. But here, some might even say, look, the man's father is, has died. He's just trying to wrap up some of the affairs. But Jesus says, no, 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 let the dead bury the dead. Not to say you can't attend a proper funeral. Jesus is saying, I want you to have undivided, undivided affection for me. Don't let anything get in the way of affection for Jesus. It's part of the cost of following Jesus. Say, I don't want anything else. You can have the world. Give me Jesus. Don't miss this. Jesus, by the way, is not begging for followers of Jesus. I plead with you all day to follow Jesus. But never once in the scriptures does Jesus get on his knees and say, please follow me. In fact, he raises the ante. Undivided, unconditional trust, undivided affection. I'd like to think both of these men hopped into the boat. That's what I'd like to think. I'd like to think they hear this from Jesus and they go, I'm in. And they hop in the boat, and as Jesus has directed these disciples, there comes a great test. He's going to divert the disaster. You've all heard this story in Matthew 8, whether you realize it or not. We always talk about this story. You go to Jerusalem, you go to the Sea of Galilee, you can see uh, what they think a boat looked like. They actually found it at the bottom, but... This boat didn't sink. So when Jesus saw the large crowd, again, that's in verse 18, verse 23, they get in a boat. His disciples followed him. 
A violent storm happens, so the boat was being swamped by the waves, and Jesus took a nap. Sometimes the most biblical thing you can do is to take a nap. The disciples came, and they woke him up saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And he says to them, why, why are you afraid, you of little little faith. See, this is why I think all of chapter 8 is about faith. Humble confidence in the sovereign king. Think about it. These disciples have seen incredible healings. A leprous man made clean. He's spoken a word long distance and it is man is healed. He, he, he has uh, risen up a fever in, induced woman, the mother-in-law of Peter. He's cast out demons. He, he then has even healed, it says, all of the sick, in verse 16, all of them. The disciples have seen all of this. And they're sitting there, and a storm comes, and they lose their minds. Now, usually when you hear this text, the question from the preacher, the pre we're part of the problem. The preacher will say, hey, whatever, whatever storm you're facing in your life, Jesus will calm that storm. The application is always, oh, whatever storm's happening, oh, your marriage, oh, yeah, he'll calm that storm. Oh, your finances, oh, the Lord, he'll calm the storm of your finances, your health, your home, your kids, your grandkids, great-grandkids. Oh, Jesus will, oh, he'll calm that storm. And the answer is always, oh, Jesus will calm the storm. That's always the, tends to be the application of this text. The problem is that that's not the application of this text. It's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not Jesus calms all the storms. The point of the story is actually found in verse 27. You say, oh, see, I want to let the text indicate what the point of the story is. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. These disciples have seen all these things take place in chapter 8. They're now in a storm and they're of little faith, Jesus has already rebuked them for this. But they see Jesus calm the winds and the sea, and they link it all the way back to the Old Testament. They're referencing the Old Testament because they're referencing how God, even in Psalm 89, 9, he's the one who directs the wind, he's the one who directs the sea, he's the one who is seen as Yahweh, who controls and has authority over all these things, and their faith is little because they don't have a humble confidence in the sovereign king who's standing in the boat with them. And so they're saying, hey, this isn't just some mere man. This is God in the flesh right before us. The sea and the wind, they obey him. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the demon cast out. They've seen the mother-in-law healed. They've seen all these things. But it's this moment that the disciples of Jesus marvel at the kingship and the glory of Jesus. The point is that Jesus is God Sovereign over all these things. The point is that Jesus is the king. He has the power. He has the authority. All of it belongs to Jesus. And they recognize it here for the first time. Therefore, the promise of the story is not that all the storms in your life will soon end. The Bible never promises that all of your storms in life will end. Your cancer may remain. That struggling marriage may not go away in a week. It may last for a lifetime. 
And as a Christian, your confidence is not that these storms will end very soon, but that in the midst of the storm, you were never alone. Faith is not confidence that trials won't come your way. Faith is confidence that no matter what the wind and the waves that come your way in this world, the God of the universe is right in the boat with you. Lastly, he defeats the demons. Verses 28 through 34, it's a great account. There's these demons, they come out of the tombs. Notice they don't need a a wind or a wave or a storm to recognize the kingship of Jesus. They come out and go, are you here to torture us? They use the word torment. They see some some pigs and they say, hey, will you just drive us out over there? And the herd of pigs, Jesus says, go, again showing authority, he go, they go and they come to the pigs and they rush into the steep bank into the sea and they perish in the water. Verse 34, at that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave. This is a fascinating account. Of course, demons violently possess these two men. Of course, Jesus now has cast them out. They're definitely afraid of the Son of God. You don't have to be afraid, by the way, of what the enemy might do to you here on this earth. God is sovereign over all of this. You don't have to live in fear or anxiety or worry, wondering what will happen, waking up at night, figuring it all out. You don't have to do that anymore. Jesus has authority over it all. The demons, they knew this. It's amazing that they know it, yet Jesus has to ask, why are you, my disciples, afraid? See, Jesus' power is not simply there to be observed. Jesus' power is to be relied on and rejoiced in. What's interesting about the end of this text is that when they saw him, the people from the town, they saw Jesus, they, they begged him to leave. It, it lands the same way for us today. When you're confronted with the sovereign king, King Jesus, you're given one of two choices. Y- you can receive him or you can reject him. And here, this crowd, they all got together. They had a little coup. They had a little Facebook group and kind of conspired together and said, hey, let's, let's ask him to leave because this is weird. They reject him. In your life, you will either receive Jesus or you're going to reject Jesus. These are the two options before you. And maybe today Jesus is saying to you, why are you so afraid? So when I think about application, I I thought about these four words. The first word is trust. You need to trust wholeheartedly. Jesus. Thought about rest. You need to rest peacefully in Jesus. Submit. You need to submit completely to Jesus and rejoice gladly in Jesus. Trust. Rest. Submit. 
rejoice. Trust, rest, submit, rejoice. See, I think many of us in this room even today would go, man, I, I choose Jesus. But we all know that Monday's coming. And you're going to wake up and the kids are not done their homework like you thought that they had done. Coffee has not been brewed or you're out. Whoo. Chaos has ensued, and you've kicked your faith out the back door with the dog, right? See, most of us live in this messy middle where we struggle with trusting, and we struggle with resting, and we struggle with submitting, and we struggle with rejoicing in the Lord. The call for us today is to not hear what Jesus has done and go, okay, next, but to go, hey, I want to have a faith that has a humble confidence in the sovereign king, which means I'm going to trust him, I'm going to rest in him, I'm going to submit to him, and I'm going to rejoice in him. For many of you, you're in this middle of mess. And today, you just need to embrace trust and rest and submission and rejoicing. There might be one of you or two of you here, three or four or five, that have not trusted in Christ as Lord. And today, you need to say, I don't want to be like those town people who wanted Jesus out. I want to trust in him today. Or maybe for you, you well, you've got a lot to think about. You've been afraid for the last year and a half, two years, you've been walking in fear. And Jesus says to you, have Faith like the centurion. Say the word and it happens. Faith, humble confidence in the sovereign king. Would you pray with me? Father, we come. And Lord, we confess our great need for you today. Lord, there are some in this room that are in this messy middle. Would you bring clarity for them today? Would they trust in you? Would they rest in you? Would they submit to you? And would they rejoice in you, the sovereign king? You've been good to us today, Lord. But we ask that as we now respond, we would be faithful to you, we would listen to you, we would respond to you. Father, for those in this room that they want to trust in you, Father, they would know that they can come forward, not for any show, but just to have a conversation about what it means to follow you. For those who are dealing with the messy middle, they would know that this altar is open and they can respond to you. For those who are online, even now, they would, they would reach out, even with the words, just pray. We would pray with them. But Lord, no matter what, that we would trust you right now. We pray this in Christ's name.